All right, hey everybody, I've got a new friend. I love collecting friends, especially very experienced, uh, trained people that care. And that leads me to my friend, Dr. Nick Wignall. Uh, he's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is kind of a second home to me, my beloved place. I know you're not originally from there, Nick, uh, but we were comparing stories. Used to have a cabin up there and spent many summers and winters in, in beloved land of enchantment. Um, but Nick's a licensed psychologist, um, has, and I found him through a tweet that a fellow entrepreneur, I think had mentioned, I went on the site and I was like, this is a treasure trove of really good practical, uh, um, tips from someone that has advanced training and very, uh, a lot of experience, uh, with mental health, which is a resonating theme in my life and something I want to champion. We got to talk on the on Zoom uh, a couple of weeks ago and just like, man, it was just such a good time. And I asked Nick to come back and um, share some of those things. So I'm going to ask him some questions. But thank you, Nick, for uh, the time today to share uh, your passion, um, all of your expertise with my audience. You're welcome, Corey. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, maybe even what led you to become a licensed psychologist? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I got my PhD from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Um, and before that, I was my master's at the University of Chicago, where I studied um, social sciences and psychology and did some research. Um, although my, my background in my undergrad is as a literature major, so I was a, didn't do any science or psychology at all. Um, I always feel like that's, I, I like to plug that because I think there's a lot of people um, who could do really well in the, uh, in step, you know, kind of STEM careers broadly, but especially psychology, even though they don't necessarily have a traditional background in that. So I think that's really important. Uh, My background, as you know, is in the software. Uh, I wasn't a developer, yeah. but I love hearing some of the stories about programmers that were like, yeah, I was an art history major in college. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but I love that. And I, right. I can totally see that influence too, is reading good writing helps you be a better writer. Um, yeah. I see that in your site. Right. And I think, you know, just studying and reading literature, it, it helps you, um, I think, think about and understand people too. I mean, that's what great literature does. I think is it presents portraits of, of people in all their, all their complexity. Um, yep. And I think that's a really important thing for, for anyone in, in mental health. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm from Northern California originally, um, just north of the Bay Area. So I grew up there um, and then made my way to Dallas for my undergrad. Um, and after, I, you know, like I said, I studied literature and then I, I taught for a couple years. Um, and in teaching, I, I sort of realized while I enjoyed teaching, I realized that I was, I was more interested in how my students were learning than in what I was teaching them. So I'd have two kids get the exact same score on a test, but do it in totally different ways. And that's, that was just kind of like fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that led me to kind of think about psychology. And um, I'd had some um, friends and kind of mentors in undergrad, my undergrad, who were in psychiatry or, or psychology. And so I kind of started picking their brains a little bit and starting to get a sense for what that world looked like. And then I, I just sort of gradually moved up. I did a master's and, and really liked it and then went on to do a, to do a PhD. Um, was kind of on the fence about whether I wanted to do research or clinical work. Because um, intellectually, the research is 
fascinating and really stimulating. But ultimately, I'm, I think I'm too much of a people person. Like, I just want to be kind of sitting next to someone, really talking to someone, learning about their story. Um, yep. And hopefully being helpful. I think I'm too pragmatic. I'm a little too pragmatic. You know, the, the research is super important. Um, but the, <laughs> the effect comes much later. You know, the, the positive effect of research comes years, decades down the line. And I think I'm too impatient. Like I, <laughs> uh, I want I want that direct kind of feedback of working with people and seeing, uh, seeing change and, and growth. Hopefully, um, so that's kind of how I found my way um, into psychology and mental health um, generally. I think it's so interesting. I resonate with that story some that humans are such we. Excuse me, I'm like I don't, I'm not part of the human race. Humans are so interesting. How we're wired, and I love that you were kind of looking at social sciences and different things and saying how, how we operate in the world. I've always been very curious about that and applied it practically in maybe in a di much different way with marketing and building the business mm -hmm. in some sense. Um, but I totally get, and I'm so glad you're on. We need research. I want research, but I right. love humans that can talk human like you do uh, and drill down to help other people. Um, mental health, as you know, is a cause for my life. Uh, as well. And I want to end the Sigma and we need good practitioners out there like you. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yes. Well, no, and I was just going to say too, that I think, you know, with your, your background in, in software and entrepreneurship, that that's a, my dad was an entrepreneur growing up. So I, I've always sort of been at least tangentially kind of aware of and, and interested in, in that world. And um, I think that's, I think we're starting to realize that mental health isn't just for, you know, housewives with anxiety or whatever the stereotypes are. Like we, we all have a, an interior life, a psychological life. We all have emotions, we all have thoughts, um, we all have mental habits, um, patterns of behavior. Um, and that's, that's something I think everyone can, what, you know, whether or not you need to see a therapist or a counselor or um, something like that, I think it's, I think there's a watershed happening where people are starting to realize everybody can benefit from thinking more about mental health and psychology and well-being. Um, and so I think that's just a really exciting, it's an exciting point uh, kind of at, in time to be in mental health um, and to be thinking and working in that, in that area. For sure. And we can dive down that for a minute because I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I, I do too, since there's a, starting to be a change culturally, at least here in the United States, Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not all about celebrities, but there's celebrity athletes in particular that have really shocked me a little bit, come out and said there's, they struggle with certain things, anxiety, depression. Um, and, and I think that's good because there's, uh, stories, obviously we look, you mm -hmm. know, look up to celebrities, but it does feel like there's this trend. And I'm so glad. And I want to be part of the movement like you do to push that snowball as fast as possible. Because, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious about that, this, I, okay. So my premise was, you know, as I, I've gotten older, when I turned 40 a couple of years ago and all that kind of stuff, you know, the physical health checkup kind of thought comes to mind. Okay, at certain, maybe at certain age, you should go get this kind of physical checkup, you know, get a physical every year or so, um, you know, check your blood pressure, check your cholesterol, all that kind of stuff. And it, it, it's crazy to me that we have some of that conversation uh, in the public about physical health, but we don't have this side, which is the, this beautiful supercomputer we have sitting inside of our mm. skull um thoughts about that so you know my story but about ten, nine nine years ago so, so i was going through a divorce and went into right. uh, my attorney actually 
told me I should go see a counselor and refer yeah. me to the one I've, I've been with for nine years. And um, it was life changing. I thought, you know what, just like you were saying that there, even if I, even if I'm not, I think there's this conversation about that's only for mentally ill, those that are right. suffering from severe mental uh, problems. And that's, that's totally false. There, there should, they should be cared for. We, those of us that have very severe mental illness should be very well cared for. That other part of the population you just mentioned and I'm just kind of curious your take on that. It feels like there's been this, there's another huge side of the equation we should be talking about and we're not. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we do a disservice to the idea of mental health when we only talk about it in terms of um, pathology or, or disease or what's wrong, right? As important as that is, I mean, arguably that's the most important thing as a field we need to work on is really helping the people who, who suffer the most. Um, and that's very, very important. But as you're alluding to, I think it's really a disservice to, to narrow our, our, our view of what mental health means to fixing what's wrong, right? Um, or only, you know, fixing the, the most severe, the most debilitating um, conditions. Because I think there are, the vast, just statistically, the vast majority of people who struggle are, are in that, well, maybe it's not, you know, maybe I'm not psychotic, maybe I don't need to be institutionalized but my depression or my anxiety is really taking its toll on my marriage or it's making it really hard to do my work, right? To stay focused, yeah. stay engaged. Um, and, and so it, it's like a personal crusade for me, I think, to realize that for, for people like that, which I think is the vast majority of us, at least at one point or another, it, mental health is a resource that's, that's just as valuable um, and okay for people who find themselves in that spot as it is for those people who are in the, you know, who have really um, more severe kind of disturbances. Um, so just realizing it's health, health means, um, you know, health doesn't just mean uh, fixing, you know, eradicating a virus or, or killing a bacteria off, right? Uh, health means going to the gym and building muscle, right? Health means figuring out a diet that works for you um, so that you feel more energized um, and vibrant throughout the day. Right. So health is much more than the absence of disease. Um, and I think we, I think um, healthcare generally is starting to realize that, but I think we really need to get that message out in terms of mental health as well. I'm, I'm going to blast that as a headline. Health is more <laughs> than the absence of a disease. You're so right. I don't know if it was my stage or life or whatever, but exercise, I think we talked about this. I, when I was growing up in high school and things, I never, I didn't play organized sports. I, so I didn't, you know, really do a ton of exercise. Um, and now as I've gotten older and, you know, the body is not necessarily holding up as fast, <laughs> metabolism screeches to a hole or something, right. um, have, you know, really found this whole world of exercise and movement. And it's so, it's so interesting because it, I care about it now. It's a healthy habit. And you, you kind of broached the subject of these healthy mm -hmm. habits uh, and, and how we, there's so many key healthy habits to add that sleep you know, foundationally getting good sleep. You know, I just was perusing one of the articles and you mentioned sleep, and how foundational it is. Um, and so for how many years I was existing with very disrupted sleep yeah. and, but how that ripple affects into, um, you know, everyday life. So I'm curious, healthy habits. What are some mm -hmm. of the ones that kind of ping to your mind? Um, Cause this is very much my stage of life right now is trying to add in, a very ritualized set of ha habits 
you know, from drinking water, and by the way, I'm drinking decaf coffee, but still I should be drinking water for right now. <laughs> um, but I, I want to hear your opinion, if you will, on that. Uh, sure. Self-care habits and taking care of yourself holistically. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to start with the kind of the broad framework of um, just like just like being healthy physically. It sure if you you know if you had a heart attack, you'd go to the doctor and you'd get a stent put in or something, right? But it, it's about you know exercising regularly, eating a good diet. Like those are all those are all facilitative of your health just as much as some intervention that your doctor's going to do, right? So I think that's the way to, to as you're pointing out, that's the way to think about mental health is. Sure, when something goes wrong, you want to know how to treat it, right? But what we also want to do is preventative, like strength building. We want to, we want to build up healthy kind of habits and routines and, and muscles um, that not only prevent or mitigate the onset of, you know, disease or disorder, um, but really that just make our, our, our lives better, right? <laughs> um, that give us more energy, that make us more enthused, that help us connect more, that, that um, allow us to do our best work, you know, instead of settling for good enough. So I think that's, it's important to be clear about the stakes, right? These are, this is, it's big, right? Yeah. So, okay. So talking about habits, and I, I love thinking about this in terms of habits. I think that's really, really important. Um, it, it, for a long time, mental health was sort of dominated by a, sort of a, a moralistic, like if you're struggling emotionally, it means you're, you're doing something wrong, right? Or more, more recently by a, kind of overly medicalized, well, it's all just bad brain chemistry, you know, <laughs> you just have low serotonin, that's it, you know, that's the thing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think while, you know, while choice and uh, neurochemistry both play a role in our mental health, I think, the, the better sort of level of analysis is to think about habits. What are my, what are my physical habits? What, what are my mental habits? How do I tend to think about or interpret certain, certain situations? How do I how do I respond to my own emotions or to emotions of other people? These are all we all have habits on on these kind of mental and emotional levels. Most of us aren't aware of them at all, but they're really the key. You know, identifying and starting to build healthy habits. This is the key to I think to mental health in a in a broad in a broad way. So the first thing is like your brain sits inside your body, right? Your brain is your body. <laughs> so I think it's really and I know this is it's almost cliche, but exercise sleep and diet are super important if you're you know if one or more of those is really not going well it, it doesn't matter you know you can do all the kind of mental or emotional work you want but if you're chronically sleep deprived like everything's going to be way harder and more of a struggle yeah. so you there, there's a danger in thinking well if i just think differently about things right <laughs> or if i just you know sort of learn to accept my emotions or something like that everything's going to be better um, you have to take care of the physical first, I think, or at least begin to address stuff on that level. Mm -hmm. No, that's the vehicle for all of it. I mean, your body is the, you know, sleep. If you're not getting good sleep, you're not going to be functioning alert and things like that. Brain, your brain needs sleep to, you know, recover. Yeah. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's a, um, like a um, marriage therapist, like a marriage counselor, um, works with couples. And he, he said, he said this thing that just, it really struck me, but it made so much sense. He said, 90% of conflict in marriages or relationships happens, happens after 9 p.m. Oh, man. I thought about that and I went, hmm, interesting. I was sort of like, and then he, he went on to sort of elaborate. People often make too much. They, they make their 
say, conflict in a relationship more complex than it needs to be. One of the reasons we tend to get in fights in the evenings is we're just worn out. We're yeah. exhausted. We're tired. We're sleepy, right? You can't, you can't do anything well. You can't run a marathon well if you're sleep deprived, right? You can't take the SATs well if you're sleep deprived. Why would you think you'd, you'd be able to work out a big interpersonal problem when you're sleep deprived? Um, Gosh, that's, that's, that, a, that's a good point. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's unhelpful to hold yourself to the standard that like I should be able to communicate really articulately and effectively and empathetically with, you know, with my wife at 11.30 in bed after I've worked a 10-hour day and spent a couple hours with the kids. I'm like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a therapist. I couldn't do it. The Dalai Lama couldn't do it. Like, no, it's, it's just yeah. biology. If yeah. you're sleep deprived, if you're eating like garbage, if you're not moving and, and kind of taking care of your body, all the other stuff is going to be a lot harder. So I think that really is important to kind of lay the groundwork there on those levels. That's such a great perspective uh, because these are the ones I've gone to last. And, mm -hmm. and I, oh, I totally see it. Now I'm understanding the, um, the, the key part of this, the central nature of exercise, sleep, and diet. Uh, sleep. I've neglected sleep so often in my life. Uh, up until I started kind of, you know, we we're sharing, I was sharing about the metabolism thing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was eating whenever I wanted and whatever I wanted for the most part and not understanding like the basic care and maintenance of my body are these three ingredients. And of course, sure. exercise was probably the last one I actually took on, but now I've seen such benefits to it when I'm kind of honestly forced to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard though. Cause all those things, diet, exercise, sleep, they're all things in the short term you can get away with compromising on, right? If you, if you get one hour less sleep, it's your, 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 your body's not going to explode just because one night you got one hour less sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you eat that extra bowl of ice cream one night, you're not going to put on 10 pounds. So it's, <laughs> it's that short-term thinking is really easy to kind of, um, I mean, it's, that's a huge struggle for all of us, I think, in, in one area of our life or another, um, is Absolutely. kind of resisting the kind of impulses of the short-term for longer term values. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's just a really hard thing. So I think, I mean, that's your experience, but that's, that's a lot of people's experiences that it's the things that matter most are often the things that are easiest to kind of put off till later. Yeah. And it's this stuff we know, we know it's good to go exercise. We know it's right. good to get a good, you know, we, we know the benefits of that. Uh, but we just, it's rationally there and not, not, not emotionally yeah. and realistically in practice in our lives. Okay. So we right. talked about physical and we talked about yep. these three keys. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, what, what next comes to mind? Yeah. So the other two levels that I think are um, sort of helpful to think about are sort of the mental uh, the emotional and the behavioral, right? So how you think, how you feel, um, and what you do, right? Like your kind of actions. So on, on a mental level, I, I think the, the, the biggest key is, or, or one of the most important ideas is to, to get outside of your own head. <laughs> like we were saying before, we all have this constant barrage of mental habits. Often it takes the form of what's called self-talk. Like if you, if you tune in, you, you will realize we're, we're constantly talking to ourselves. It's like, it's like the narrator of a book. We're, we're both the protagonist and the narrator at the same time. Yeah. The thing is, though, like, just like when you're reading a book, how you feel about a certain character depends a lot on how they're being presented by the narrator. Mm. Right? So if the narrator has a really negative take on the character and what they're doing and what they're thinking, 
that's going to influence us, right? Yeah. Despite what we see the character actually doing. So that, that, that's almost a perfect analogy for ourselves in real life. You, you can be doing all the right things, right? You can be um, working, you know, working hard at your job, right? Like taking on a new project, um, even though you're a little bit scared of it, right? And deciding to do it anyway. But if you have this narrator in your head constantly, that's constantly like putting you down and telling you what a screw up you're going to be and how this stuff never works out for you, even if you know this is something you want to do and you're capable of doing, you're going to feel like garbage yep. if, that, if that narrator is just left unchecked. So I think be, start figuring out ways to become more aware of how habitual thinking patterns affect you. And that's something that there are a lot of different ways to do this. So I think it's a big reason why therapy or counseling is helpful is because you get that stuff out, right? A, a therapist or a counselor helps you see that stuff, those, have, those mental habits going on in your mind, right? But it can, also, it can happen with a good friend, right? Or a mentor can kind of help you with that. Um, journaling, like a lot of people, there's a reason people have been journaling and keeping diaries for millennia, yeah. <laughs> right? Is because it, it helps you get perspective on yourself, like you read the, the notebooks of, of Marcus Aurelius and he's, he's struggling with himself to try and do the things that he aspires to. And so by getting that struggle out on paper, he gets perspective on it, right? Gosh, um, yes, yes. So some, some form of getting your thoughts outside of your own head. Um, okay. I, I, I treat a lot of, I work with anxiety a lot and I, I like to kind of joke, half joke with my clients, you should never worry in your head. Like if you're going to worry, do it on paper or do it out loud, but don't do it in your own head. <laughs> oh, that's good. Because um, it, it just stays mysterious and automatic when it's in your head. It's so fast. Yes. That it, it's hard to catch and do anything about. So wh whether you struggle with anxiety or depression or anger or whatever it is, everything benefits from learning to, to watch and become more attentive to those mental patterns and habits. We had a conversation, I think, about this on, on Twitter, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, and I've used journaling for the most part of my life, uh, not like consistently every day or anything like that. Right. When I was going through the worst times uh, in my business career as an entrepreneur, um, sometimes I would think it of, you, you said it so much more eloquently, by the way, but I would think of it as, I've got to vomit this stuff out. I never mm -hmm. thought of it as like, don't leave it in here. I, I, I don't know. It was just more like this visceral. I got to get this. I get, just got to get this toxic outside because yeah. when you said the word self-talk, I was like, Oh man, my inner jerk. You're talking about this guy mm -hmm. that here that just tells me I'm the worst that if I talk the way this little gremlin does on my shoulder to anybody in my life, I'd be a very lonely man. <laughs> right. right. Um, but I treat, yeah. yeah. So, so good. I, and I love journaling and there's study and research about that particular expression of, you know, being able to kind of interact with it once it's outside of the echo chamber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Psychologists like to talk about this phenomenon called cognitive fusion, which is the, the very fancy sounding term for what's pretty, a pretty simple idea, which is um, cognitive fusion is when your identity is fused with your thoughts. Like it's not separate. If you have a thought that says you're going to screw this up, you, you think of yourself as a screw up, right? Yeah. So, but the oh, things like journaling or, or, you know, talking with a therapist or even a good friend, what that does is it, it, when I say get your thoughts out of your head, it's not just a metaphor. It's 
you literally want to put distance between yourself, like who you are, and the thoughts that happen to be running through your head. Because you, you are not your thoughts. They're a part of you, right? But they don't subsume who you are. They don't dictate who you are. Um, and so I think that's the mechanism. That's why all those things like, like journaling, like talking it out with a good friend, like psychotherapy, whatever, they, they help you break apart that cognitive fusion and see yourself as separate from that, you know, that inner jerk or whatever inner person. Yeah. Is. <laughs> uh, okay. People of earth that are listening to this, Nick just dropped the biggest gift. I mean, in a long time, like that, that right there, that perspective of getting it out and set, you use the word separating right there worth the entire time. We could shut it down, but we're not going mm. to Nick. That was so fantastic. Can I segue for a second? Sure. So, yeah. Okay. We're talking about self-thought and we're talking about all these things inside. And I, I think about, this this nug and this brain being the most advanced currently supercomputer in the world. Not just mine. I'm I'm talking about you. Sure. <laughs> uh, but we have this incredible, uh, you know, and like supercomputers sitting here that right now still makes decisions faster than I believe the fastest computers in the world. Mm-hmm. The, like the snap gut that you don't even notice sometimes that happen. Right. Um, okay. So back pair this with my background with. Uh, building software company and software mm-hmm. products. I, I've kind of, and I, I want to test this and you, you feel free to humble me, but I just think that self-talk is that programming of putting all this stuff in. And if we're putting negative in, we're going to, like you said, we're going to get negative out. Yeah. And I've been really trying this last year is really working on that program, that programming language. And I might be messing this up, with mm-hmm. the but I think about it in a sense of if I'm telling myself I'm terrible, if I'm telling myself I'm going to fail, that's the stuff yeah. I put it into the supercomputer and it's going to, and it's going to fail. Right. No, I love it. This is, this is uh, uh, fortuitous. I was just in the other day, I was in a session with a client who's a, a software developer and he made the really interesting observation that um, there for him, therapy was like debugging his own software, oh, right? We, wow. we all, yeah. no matter how good a programmer you are, right? Like nobody produces pristine code, right? You're always going to have bugs in there, right? Some code more than others at different points in, in, a, in a program's lifespan or development span, it's going to have more or less. But the point is, there's always going to be bugs. And so as any good developer or team of developers knows, you need, a, you need a protocol, you need a system for systematically, deliberately looking for and then working out bugs right? It's not just some afterthought that you do like when someone complains. That yeah. is built, that is like so core to software development is that you have a, at least as, as far as I know, um, it, it's, it's essential, right? You, you oh, need gosh, dedicated yeah. time and energy to do that. So similarly, I think all of us on some, like you were saying, it, there's a lot of stuff that we basically, we basically know what we should do. We should exercise, we should eat better. And I think a lot of us on some level, we understand that you know, if that like the jerk in my head, the negative self-talk, it's probably not doing me any favors, but we don't necessarily do anything about it. It just kind of keeps running in the background. And this brings us back to habits, I think. Like just like a, a, a software company, it's not enough to just tell your employee, you tell the, tell the developers, you know, watch out for bugs. Like, no, yeah. you need a protocol in place. Like you, you oh, need man. like a system, right? And so I think for us, we all get bugs. We all get buggy, right? And those bugs, just like a software bug leads to poor functionality, 
crashing <laughs> sometimes, right? Oh, Our God. internal mental bugs lead to, I mean, sometimes we literally crash, but more often than not, it just leads to a lot of kind of emotional friction right? yeah. and stress, which Problems. just makes the whole thing kind of slow down and the whole system gets sluggish and, and difficult. So if you can build in a system for debugging your own mental software, I think things really open up. So whether it's a, a journaling habit or seeing a counselor once a week or meditating, like whatever, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But I think helping people see why that's so important and then to also see, it's the, you know, the, the idea is not enough. You, you need a protocol. You need a system. You need a habits that are going to help you do the thing you need to do. So when you're talking about that and you're ringing my bell this whole time, but <laughs> I think of two two kind of concepts and maybe theories or whatever, but cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. I love that approach, and and you obviously are the expert. But and then, um, well, that was the one. What was the second one? I forgot the second one. Oh, uh, the growth mindset. Oh Carol yeah, Dweck's sure. Dweck. uh, mm-hmm. selling book on that concept. So there's a site that actually uh, it's growth mindset, kind of oriented toward kids, where mistakes aren't like mm. doom and gloom. Like you're right. You're, you're so broken if you make a mistake kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it is what I love, this concept of learning. It's just a learned experiment that happened to tell you, no, <laughs> it didn't work there. Try something new. I, and I love those two concepts because those feel like mm-hmm. more a protocol. Uh, or, you know, kind of what you're getting at, like I just love the approach, which is putting good, positive, learning, growing uh, protocols in there to, to debug the system. Yeah, and I think learning is a great way to look at it because actually a surprise, and maybe this is where the metaphor breaks down a little bit, but at least in terms of human psychology, the vast majority of our bugs, they weren't just random errors. They, a lot of times, they started off as something helpful, right? So we, if you've got a, if you grow up in a really volatile household, right, where with parents who are kind of high conflict, right, you're, it, it would make sense to spend a lot of time worrying about what other people are gonna do and what they're thinking. Because as a kid, you don't have any other recourses, right? Like you, you can't do a whole lot. So what do you do? Well, you can worry and you can try and keep yourself safe. Now that habit of worry, that probably served you well as a 10 year old, right? In this, in this kind of chaotic, potentially dangerous environment. But now that you're 28 and you have a wonderful relationship and a great job and things are going well, just because things are going well doesn't mean that habit doesn't mean that bug has been purged. <laughs> it's yeah. still in there, right? And unless you have a, a system, some sort of methodology for identifying and working through those bugs, they're going to continue to impact your life in a, in a not real helpful way. Um, so true. I think you're reading my email, Nick, because you just kind of probably <laughs> paralleled uh, kind of my life. Uh, but I, I totally see that. And those strategies that might've worked then don't work later. And now it's time. That's why I'm such an advocate of going to a professional, professionally yeah. licensed, trained practitioner to be able to get some, uh, get some uh, perspective on it in, in a clinical way, like a trained right. way. And by the way, I always say it's, it's so nice Thanksgiving coming up to not be, have to say to that therapist, pass the cranberries, please. You know what Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. like I just love the objective of like, they're helping us, but not, you, you don't have to unload all the stuff and then go right. talk about 
you know, stuff, family things at <laughs> holiday or whatever. Sure. Sure. Okay. Thank you for the segue. God, Nick, we could, yeah. we could talk all day. I love this. Thank you so much. Uh, but I, I stopped you. So we're talking about mental and think, and you talked about oh, journaling yeah. and getting that outside of the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stopped you, but if you could resume there. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So, well, maybe just one more that would be good to talk about is this, the emotional level. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that the thing about emotions, <laughs> the thing about emotions, Corey, <laughs> let me tell you, um, <laughs> most of us through, through no one's fault, I don't think it's anyone's intentionally doing this, but we, we tend to think of uncomfortable emotions, think anger, anxiety, sadness, guilt. We tend to think of them as bad because they're painful. Right. Um, and as a result, when we interpret them or think of them as bad, or dangerous, we, we want to get rid of them, which makes sense, right? You got them, you got a virus in you, right? That's leading to illness. Yep. You get rid of the virus, right? That's, that's what a good doctor would do. The thing is just because things that feel painful often are indicators of danger, right? When you um, touch your hand on a hot stove and feel pain, that's an indicator that like something bad's going to happen if you leave your hand on that stove. So get it off. Right. Um, but it's not always the case, right? When you, when you go to the gym for the first time in two months and do a real hard workout, you're going to walk out of the gym in some pain, right? Your muscles are going to be sore. You're going to be doing the waddle. You know, you can always tell people who you know, just come back to the gym after a while because they, they do this like cowboy waddle out of the gym because they're so sore, right? Yep. Um, so pain does not equate with um, something being bad or something that needs to be gotten rid of. But I think that's how we all tend to think about painful emotion. Totally. Right? When, when Guilty we as feel charged. sad, yeah, oh yeah, all of us, right? It's just in our like, I don't know if it's literally in our DNA, but it's in our cultural DNA for sure. Mm-hmm. Is that if something feels bad, we want to either get rid of it, kill it, <laughs> or kind of distract ourselves from it. Yep. And this, to me, this is just at the core of so many difficulties that we that we get into. And so I think a really key sort of basic like habit is to start to to do what what a psychologist would call emotional validation mm-hmm. which is instead of instinctively thinking how can i get rid of this feeling right or how can i distract myself from this uncomfortable feeling or or medicate it self-medicate it exactly away yep yep um first can i just acknowledge it and sort of validate that like my emotions aren't bad right? Um, you're, you're supposed to have emotions. <laughs> it's yeah. part of your, it's, it's evolution designed emotions for a reason, right? right? Now, are they always meaningful? Are they always pointing you in the right direction? Not necessarily, right? But you don't want to throw the baby out with bathwater. Um, if you get in a habit of constantly being critical and even aggressive with your own emotions, um, in the long run, that's just a recipe for disaster because you're, you're training your own brain to be afraid of itself to be afraid of one of its own functions. I don't know. There's probably a weird like recursive function software analogy in here that I can't really flesh out. But listening. they'll be like, no, it's this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no. the point is what we want to do is cultivate um, a healthier relationship with our own emotions. And just like with a, with a person, you know, if, a, if your spouse or a, um, a partner or friend came to you and they were really upset, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just say like, Oh, well, don't you know how lucky you are? You don't need to be upset. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or, or like, I don't know, just go have a few drinks and you'll feel better. Like, no, we wouldn't say that to someone else. 
what would we do? We would listen, right? Give them a hug. We'd validate and say, oh man, you know, I, I can see how that would be awful. Like, I'm so sorry. We just, we'd be with them, right? Yep. And I think while all of us or most of us are actually pretty good at being empathetic and validating with other people and with other people's negative emotions, we are terrible at doing it with ourselves. <laughs> we just, we, we're, we're combative, I think, really, with our own quote unquote negative emotions. Well, right. yeah, um, we, we stifle it. We chase it away with, you know, substances. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm raising my hand on that, but you know, so much of what you're saying, I, I read a book uh, about a year ago, I think it was language of emotions. Well, I think what it's called, but it was the hmm. first time like anger. I, th- I don't know if it's culturally or, or just me or whatever, but I kind of tend to anger. You're like, Oh, that's not good. But right. the, the premise there was anger is a boundary setting. Uh, emotion like we have these emotions I think they can be boiled down to maybe six or seven uh, but we have these emotions for for very good reasons they're alert right. systems or warning systems in some some sense you know sadness for instance it's the emotion I don't want to feel you know personally right. but there's a there's a grief of you know something ending or something not being true or you know that and and that's so good the negative the perceived negative emotions are the ones right. that i'm like stifle down don't come back you're not wanted here yet i'm betraying kind of like you said is betraying what is mm-hmm. wired in to tell me like that is somehow my my existence telling me something that i'm not responding very favorably to it right right <laughs> yeah i i love the um the old saying, don't shoot the messenger. Yeah. Right? You've heard that. Like when the, when the bill collector comes knocking at your door and you get pissed off at the bill collector, it, that, that's what we call displaced emotion. Like the, you're not mad at the bill collector. You're mad at the billing agency or you're mad at yourself for going into debt. But yes. don't, don't shoot the messenger. It's just the messenger, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have a, a, a colleague who talks about the way he explains emotion to his patients in a really memorable way, I think, is that Emotions are like lights on your dashboard in your car, right? So take, take the low fuel light. I think all of us, when we see our little low fuel light go off, we get a little anxious. We get a little jolt of anxiety. Ugh, gotta totally. find a gas That's station, me. right? Now, here's the thing though. Would you, if in response to getting anxious by your low fuel light going off, would it be smart to put a piece of duct tape over your low fuel light? Like, <laughs> like sure, like you wouldn't feel that little hit of anxiety next time but you're gonna end up out of gas on the side of the freeway in the middle of the night, right? So it, the light itself, even though it produces, a, that's not the problem, right? Yep. <laughs> um, so similarly, our emotions themselves are not problems. Mm. And I think that, yep. take, you gotta really let that sink in a little bit. That just because they feel bad doesn't mean they're a problem that you have to get rid of or you have to distract yourself from or whatever. And so, I think learning to, and again, this is one of those things that happens, I think, in journaling. It happens with really good friends. It, it certainly happens in therapy. But you learning to be more validating and accepting of how you feel rather than that kind of gut reaction to get rid of it or avoid it. Gosh, that, that takes work. Uh, so I, much I work. <laughs> you, you've, you've so eloquently laid this out for us, but it, it really it, it goes back. It takes work. It's noting. Like, you know, it things operate so fast. It's noting, okay, if I'm feeling, there's that, if this, then that, yeah. if I'm feeling anger, you know, 
what is my mind subconscious existence telling me is is perhaps a bound you know in the example i shared boundary setting thing that mm-hmm. you're not you know that that is so complex we're such complex creatures <laughs> man okay we really are yeah um, but you know often too often being in our thoughts or in our emotions is actually a far more complex and confusing situation when you when you learn to just step back and see your thoughts your self talk to see your emotions just for what they are just just kind of notice them and observe them and maybe validate them a little bit yep it it feels really hard and complicated because we've been trained to do the opposite for yeah. our whole lives but it's actually it's actually a lot easier to just observe your inner life rather than start wrestling with it right or running away from it that actually takes way more energy in the long run oh yeah um, and so I, I think that's a key it, it, it's hard because again culturally we've been kind of pointed in the other direction but it, it in the long run it's actually a, a lot easier of a it's an easier way to live <laughs> when you're when you're friends with your emotions including your difficult ones or your self-talk rather than being um enemies well the perspective you shared which is recognizing that those are dashboard indicators of your mm-hmm. life what is if I'm feeling sadness? Why am I feeling sadness? You know, I think we've probably all been in a situation where you're like, why am I feeling sad at the moment? You know, but right. there's something there that has been heard, seen, felt, and uh, questioning that, noting that. I think that goes back to you mentioned earlier mindfulness, and and I know with mindfulness there's visualization, but also mental note taking. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that practice probably more so in the last year has helped me more than anything is understanding the trick. You know everything processes so fast and just going, why what happened in my situation triggered that event? There's been so much talk about habits, you know, and habit loop and feedback and everything. And I've dove into that and it's been such good, good stuff. But I I love how you've laid all of this out, uh, Nick and and related it back to habits that are healthy habits. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's next after this? What we talked about thinking, feeling, and then there was doing too, which is the practice, right? Yeah, and so that's, um, and there's, there's a lot here, but it, I mean, it's just, it's good to realize that both our kind of our, our thoughts and emotion, they tend to push us towards action, right? right. So, um, you know, they, they kind of, when we're angry, we, we want to lash out and say sar- something sarcastic, right? When we're sad or depressed, we want to just kind of hunker down and not do anything. Um, but I, I think without going into too much depth, it's really important to be able to see while our thoughts and our emotions influence our behavior, they, they never dictate it. And, and so learning, when you learn to be more aware of your thoughts, of your emotions, one of the really, maybe the most important benefit there is it creates a space between sort of stimulus and response <laughs> between Okay, I have this thought or this emotion pop into my consciousness and I feel pushed towards, you know, X behavior or action. Um, But the more aware I am of my own psychology, my own inner life, the more of a pause I can get there and say, huh, okay, I feel pushed that direction, right? But do I really need to, to do that? Do I really need to go? Is that what I really want? Is go moving towards X what I really want? Do I really want to? Yeah, it would it would ease my hurt and it would like 
ding another one on my wife if I like said something sarcastic. But like, is that who I want to be? Like, is that the kind of person I want to be like long term? So I think creating a pause between what happens to us, how we feel, and then what we end up doing, that's, that's the way to kind of get out of the hamster wheel of short term desires and inclinations and into the world of well, what's really most important to me? Right? What are my values? What are my principles? And how do I start moving toward those? But it's really hard to do that if you're kind of a slave to just whatever's popping through in your mind. If you're not aware of those mental and emotional patterns, it's super easy to just get caught up in those and, to, and then to be in that really tough spot of, yeah, I know I want to be, I want to communicate better and I want to be a better husband or, or wife, right, in my relationship. I, I want to write that novel that I've always told myself I was going to. Um, but it's, it, it, it's hard to really make progress towards those higher values if we, if we can't create space between how we're feeling and what we're thinking and then what we end up doing. Yeah. And so much, so, so many times I think the actions you can start and go look at these, I'm acting this way patterns and then try to start to trace back of these automatic thought patterns that's going to the, to yeah. the cycle. Gosh. That's yeah, absolutely. Okay. Gosh, thank you so much. Uh, I know we uh, want to be careful with your time and so gracious of your time too. Um, thank you for that, Nick. Any, any parting shots on that before I kind of change the subject and talk about uh, your book, which relates to a great concept that I want to dive in with you, which is how to find a therapist and what to look for and, and that. Yeah, let's, that, let's do it. Let's dive in. Okay. So thank you so much for that. So, okay. You've written a book called Find Your Therapy, A Practical Guide to Finding Quality Therapy. And I'm going to put all this, uh, Nick's website, uh, nickwignall.com, as well as his book in the show notes. So all that's going to be there. Um, okay. So tell me, would you tell me, and I've been through this several times, but how do you, how do you find, how do you find quality therapy? That's kind of your, your topic of the book mm -hmm. too, which I think is so good. There's therapist. And then there's also what approach do I need, I guess. Um, right. Yeah, I sort of, I'll be honest, I, the motivation to write this book was pretty selfish. Um, I, as soon as I became a psychologist, I understandably started getting tons of people asking me about, you know, my niece really struggles with depression. How do we get her in to see someone good, right? Or my husband has got these anger issues and I just don't know what to do anymore. How can I help him find someone or whatever the case may be, right? And so I was and I, it's a, it's a topic I care a lot about. So I was getting into these like half hour conversations with people um, saying the same thing over and over and over again, which yeah. is, and it kind of takes a while. There's a lot to it. Um, so I decided, you know, it'd be easier if I could just hand something out, <laughs> just hand out a book. Um, so that, that's kind of how all this was born. But I think that, and I, I, I hope that the title kind of communicates that, you know, therapy or counseling is something I think increasingly people are aware of as an option. And maybe something, hopefully, not just for people who might need therapy, you're so depressed you're not getting out of bed, right, in the mornings, but really importantly, anyone who thinks they could benefit from therapy. That's, what, that's the way I really like to, to frame therapy is to think about it as, how could I benefit from doing therapy or counseling? Yeah. Because right? that sort of encompasses that broad concept of health, mm -hmm. right? Not just the absence of illness or pathology or distress but like strength, vibrancy, right? So, um, but I think that the two things that are hard, even though people may, might know, hey, you know, 
maybe I should see someone. I've been thinking about it for a while. It would probably help. The two, the two biggest obstacles are just the mechanics of how, like the mm-hmm. nuts and bolts, the logistics of like ooh, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapy, counseling, like what, CBT, psychodynamic. You know, there's all these like jargony terms yeah. and stuff that we as a field do a terrible job <laughs> helping people sort of sort through. So that, that's one of the big issues that the book addresses, right? Is like, what, what are just, what are the nuts and bolts, right? What, what are the big kind of concepts and ideas and that you need to know and understand? Um, but then also quality. I think a lot of people, there's actually a lot of people who have tried some form of counseling or maybe their parents stuck them in counseling when they were 12 because of, you know, whatever reason they saw someone twice and they have this kind of nasty taste in their mouth about their therapist or their spouse drug them into couples counseling, right? Even though they didn't really want to go and thought it was a waste of time. So a lot of people have all these kind of negative impressions of therapy um, or counseling. And I certainly think there are, there are bad counselors and therapists out there and it's, it's not a cure-all. It's, it's not like there's nothing magical about it, but this idea of quality therapy, like there are really good approaches to therapy, you know, really big, good, like, evidence-based, like research-supported approaches. Um, and there are really good therapists out there. It's like anything. It's like any profession. There, there's going to be some kind of a distribution of quality, right? And, but you, you wouldn't say, you know, plumbers are a bunch of quacks, you know, because you had one plumber who did a shoddy job. Right. What would you do? Well, you'd ask around and you'd try and find another plumber, right? someone yeah. who was a little bit better. So I think the same thing, it's really important that you think about therapy that way, that it's, it's a process. You're going to have to do some sort of sifting and, and filtering. Um, and it's, it, I, to some extent, it's a little different than in medicine, right? If, I don't know, if you, if, you have a, if you have a heart attack, right, and someone has to put a stent in, basically any cardiologist can do that, right? Now, maybe if you have some extremely complicated, rare heart condition, you want like the best one, right? Um, but like in a lot of medicine, it's just you kind of go, they give you your pills, whatever, you're good, right? That is not the case with therapy. Therapy is much more like finding a coach or a mentor or a, um, or a plumber or an accountant or, you know, it's, it's got to be a really good fit for you. Um, so I think those, that's kind of the, the setup for the book in that I, I try to kind of help people understand and navigate, okay, what are the logistics? You know, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist and a marriage and family therapist, right? Um, what's the difference between CBT versus um, DBT versus, you know, um, emotion-focused therapy? You know, there's all these like, so I give some kind of brief um, kind of descriptions of what those are and wh- whom they might be helpful for. Um, relative to other things, right? Fantastic. So, if, you know, if you're, um, yeah, whatever, given, given um, certain individual characteristics, what types of therapies or therapists might be more helpful to you? Um, and, then, and then trying to think through it, really trying to validate the fact that it's, there's no, like, you kind of just have to put in the reps when it comes to finding a therapist. And that's totally okay, right? Like, if you're, if you want to, you know, get a new HVAC system put in, what are you going to do? You're not just going to like go to the first person in the phone book and say, yeah, come do our thing. Yeah. You're going to call them. You're going to get some quotes, might have them come out, look around. Right. So you got to do the same thing with therapy or counseling. Right. Yep. 
call around, talk to some people on the phone, get a sense for like who they are as a person. Do you like talking to them? Are they like a personable, engaging human being? Are they like a weirdo that kind of gives you like strange vibes? Mm-hmm. Don't see them. Right. <laughs> You're under no obligation to. They're, they're, in, in most cases, there are, there are lots of different therapists out there. Um, so you really have to be, you have to go into it knowing there's going to be a little bit of a vetting process. And you're under no obligation to go with the first person you find or with just because someone recommended someone or referred someone. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't meet with them once or twice and decide uh, it's not my thing. I'm going to keep looking. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Like it's totally, you know, most of the situations I've personally been in and then also talked with others is it comes to a crisis point and go, okay, we need to go to a therapist. Marriage is, you know, in crisis or something. And then we end up, this is why I I try to preach that we need, we need to have just like we have a primary care physician. So when Mm -hmm. I get sick, I go into uh, Dr. Uh, Wynn downtown Oklahoma city. Mm -hmm. I have her, I'm familiar. She knows my history. Same uh, for a therapist, counselor, uh, psychologist is having that familiarity where I can go and not have to start from scratch too and go, okay. Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, that is so true in my experience too, is making sure it's a good fit mm-hmm. and knowing that, yeah. you know, and I love how your book lays out the fact that there are all these, you know, mine was just, attorney said, hey, it's probably a good time to get, go see a therapist. It's like, yeah, yeah, I li- like to do that. I've seen therapists right. in the past, you know, and happen to have a great fit with him. Right, but uh, right. knowing some of the setups and, and nuances, I think it's so good. And having that person, this is again preaching away, having somebody that you can contact when something happens or just for maintenance. Yeah. And I think you, you really want to think about it like one of the ways I, I try and describe this is think about it like, um, like a kind of like a coach. Most people in some form or another have had a coach, whether it's a soccer coach or a music teacher or a business mentor or something, right? And I think when, to me, when you boil down a good kind of coaching relationship, there's kind of two things you want to look for, which I think really applies to finding a counselor or a therapist. You want to find someone you're comfortable with, right? Someone you feel like at ease with, someone who helps you feel at ease, someone who's a normal person has a sense of humor, maybe, you know, like someone right. you can relate to. I think that it, it's important. Is it absolutely necessary? No, not necessarily, but it helps if you, if you feel comfortable and understood. And I think that that matters. But then you also, I think, want someone who's going to challenge you, right, in, in a, a kind of productive way, right? Someone, because a lot of therapists, I think, fall into the side of they're, they're super empathetic and understanding, but they it's just the, I hear this all the time. I saw someone for three years and it was, I just went in there and like complained about all my stuff and nothing ever happened. That's unfortunately that happens a lot. And I think you want to look for someone who's got a little, like a coach, someone who's going to, in a, in a gentle way, someone who's going to hold you accountable and push you a little bit and give you some structure um, and accountability to help you get where you want to go. So I think thinking about those two dimensions are, and the, you know, the relative balance is going to be a little different for everybody in their situation. But I think those are two, uh, two really good kind of rules of thumb when you're, you know, meeting with someone or even just calling people on the phone. Can, can you get a sense for, is this someone who is empathetic and, and like a normal person that I would like to talk to? <laughs> yeah. And are they also someone who's 
kind of seems like they kind of have it together and, and kind of have a plan and can really help me grow. Um, yeah, I love that the push and challenge, and 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 you know in coaching in my executive coaching for UT Dallas by the way, it was oh, that yeah. support and and challenge um, that that duality which is so good. You don't want someone that's not going to kind of help you move and grow where right. you, know, you can call somebody and just kind of vent out your uh, or your journal like we talked about. <laughs> right. about right. Out. Um, but I, I really like that too, uh, pushing to move forward, to, you know, to take some action, whatever that is. Yeah. I think that's so key. Yep. Okay, Nick, thank you so much. I don't want to take, we've got this time slated and I know you're busy helping people there in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, so thank you, Nick. Where can we, where can others find you? And what do you, maybe if you have, what's on the horizon for you? What's next? So I'm, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not that far out of grad school. I mean, I'm five years into working kind of professionally. So I'm still really enjoying doing therapy and working with people. And I, I feel like I'm learning constantly and kind of refining my own approaches. And so I'm, I'm, I don't see any end of that anytime soon. Um, but I also, I, I love to write. Um, and so for a while now, I've been thinking about how can, there, there's so many good insights and techniques and ideas and concepts in the world of mental health and therapy that are useful for people who are struggling with more clinical kind of conditions, but are also, I think, can be really helpful for everybody, right, in there. So even if you don't have full-blown insomnia, there are some things, sometimes counterintuitive things, you can, anyone can do to kind of tighten up their sleep and get better sleep. And if you're, man, if you could just get 10% better sleep on average, right, each night, you're happiness, your productivity, your relation, everything is going to, it's gonna, it's like a great kind of 80-20 principle, right? A tiny improvement in something like sleep can lead to huge outside gains in other aspects of your life. So w- one of my little pet missions is to kind of take some of those important insights and techniques and stuff from the world of uh, behavioral science and psychology and mental health and kind of talk about them and present them in a kind of practical, accessible way. Um, mostly via writing at this point. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying I, I write a lot um, and it's all on my website, which is just my name, nickwignall.com. Um, that's kind of the hub for all my all my stuff. Yeah, and I highly recommend going there and before you get, get just dive down his amazing archives, hit the newsletter link, sign up for his newsletter. You're not going to want to miss anything. I'm, I'm a part of his newsletter list because I don't want to miss anything. And then after you've done that, go dive down his, and I, uh, his archives. And I know um, you've had a course out there and now are working on, I believe, version two, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I'm really excited to, when you're able to, to release that, I think I'm on the wait list for that as well. So cool. you, you all Absolutely. want to follow Nick and his work, subscribe to his list and, and stay tuned for what's next from him. Uh, you're also a very prolific writer on medium too. I know now you're doing that cool strategy, which is investing in your own domain, which is fantastic. That's a little plug from my background there right. uh, and using WordPress. WordPress plus medium is the way of the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Nick, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Yeah, this has helped me and I know it's going to help a bunch of other people. Uh, I'll have all of this posted to the website and YouTube channel soon. Thanks, Nick. Cool. Thank you, Gordon.